Why We Bleep is sponsored by Signal Sounds. Hey you, Tony Rolando fan. Do you have no control over the fact that you need to make noise? The exponential rise of your modular cases got you struggling to function because you did the maths. And to morph the dream into a rosy reality will put too much pressure on the points in your bank account. Worried staying in the black will take too much gold. Thinking of reneging? End the cycle. No. Coast on over to signalsounds.com where cues are a thing of the past. A rich mix of options strike like a bolt of lightning. They've got the 4MS Ensemble Oscillator back in black and looking good. The new system's instrument's inertia is set to move. The Afterlater Bleep Bloop 2000. From a podcast about modules that made a module. Why don't I have a module? And the schlappy boundary that sounds 100% made up but is real and Alex is raving about it. Plus the SSF Autodub. A stereo VCA with an FX send return on a button that you whack to put echoes in your phones. You can tell. Harmonic bliss awaits. So to make noise music, visit Signalsounds.com. That's Signalsounds.com. Hi, welcome to Why We Bleep. Today I am extremely proud to present a conversation with Tony Rolando. Tony Rolando is the person behind Make Noise Music, a very well-known company in the world of Eurorack. But this conversation is full of the story of Tony creating Make Noise. And it is really interesting to be able to talk to someone who's basically come from nowhere, you know? And I I hope Tony doesn't make me saying that, but it's like, you know, he grew up in central Illinois and was just a kid into Van Halen who wanted to make music. And yet somehow, bit by bit, effort by effort, he has built a successful company that employs multiple people in North Carolina and is talked about as one of the most celebrated Eurorack companies, truly. That, you know, while it's a niche, you know, within a niche, it, it's an incredible achievement. And he's really built that from very humble beginnings. He did not have huge financial backing and he did not also have, interestingly, access to Buchler and Surge synthesizers. He didn't have a Surge dual universal slope generator when he was developing maths, he had a clone of part of it and then was using Dupfer modules and reading specs and what he could glean from the internet and inferring things that he could learn about the designs. He did not have like a Buchler 259 sitting around. And I'm pretty sure in the podcast I give it the wrong name. 
259, by the way, is the correct name of that module. Uh, a complex oscillator from Buchler that he did not have, yet he made a complex oscillator module called the DPO. So it's interesting to know that Tony has not had the things that he has made versions of. He's simply learned what he could about the design and put his own spin through necessity because he didn't own them. Although, with that said, of course, now he does have access to those things. So it was very interesting to begin this conversation with a talk about how he uses inspiration about everything because he now has access to it. But he didn't at the time. Talking to Tony is talking to a person from really humble beginnings who has built something with blood, sweat and tears and far too much work. Like, it's really interesting hearing Tony talking about making the quad multi-mode gate. And despite, by the way, that a lot of people complain about the cost of the QMMG, like now and so on and so forth. The Tony's overriding comment is how little they sold it for back in the day versus how much work he was physically putting into making those modules. Something that people that you nor I cannot appreciate when we see a product on a web page or a forum post saying, hey, I made this and hey, it's available for sale. Like you have no idea the amount of work that went into making that. And especially as Tony says in this podcast, it's not like a denigration of Tony, it's just a truth. He's like, you know, I've got some smarts, but I'm not necessarily the best business person. And it's the person who's passionate about something, but not necessarily the best business person who makes something and charges a price for it arbitrarily that doesn't represent the amount of work and effort that goes into it. Um, I bring this up because it's an interesting point as, as we endlessly debate on the internet about how a certain thing should cost a certain amount and it does or it doesn't hardware is hard and as i talk to these companies i have come to appreciate more and more how much effort goes into making these things that we buy and how we are blindsided by mass market technologies to think that things should cost far less than it's reasonable for them to, especially given the fact that we don't appreciate that they're perhaps being made by just one guy or one guy and his wife who very patiently is soldering modules on the porch as they did before Tony started to employ people and actually build a company. So all this more <laughs> await you in this conversation, a biographical exploration of the life of Tony from Make Noise. It begins with a conversation talking about a certain polyphonic synth from Yamaha that I spied behind Tony in the, in the webcam view of him as we were chatting via the magic medium of the internet. So without further ado, I would like to present this conversation with Tony Rolando from Make Noise. Thanks. Yeah, and I hope you're well. Are you in your office? Where are you? Where are you right now? Uh, I'm in my home studio right now. Oh. What is that behind you? There is uh, the Yamaha 
CS80. <laughs> <laughs> talk, talk me through. Is that yours? That belongs yes, to you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's awesome. It's probably my probably my favorite poly synth, um, mostly because the keypad is is really unique. I mean, the thing has a lot of wood in it. Like, there's actual like the body is made out of wood. If you pop it open, like everything that the circuit boards sit on is like it's all like wood framing throughout. But the keys are wood, and you can really feel it. They're like they they're weighted. It feels like a piano almost. Not quite as much, but close. But there's this sensing in it that's really um, it's just unlike anything else I've ever played. And I've tried a few of the MPE keyboards, like the C board, and those are cool. But this is different. It's like more uh, like you actually have to actually take kind of a, quite a little bit of strength. Like they, it's like you really kind of have to lay into it, but it likes that. Like the, you know, like it really can handle, like really like kind of hammering on it or like kind of leaning on it. It, it really likes that. Yeah, the sound in it itself is pretty, is unique. It's not. Um, I think a lot of people will probably be surprised. Yeah, like what's things about it? Like like the envelopes are really, uh, they're pretty snappy. Like they and like you really don't get those. Like if people associate it so much with like these really long like kind of big swelling pads, but the range of the attack times and release, it's like only the very like upper 10, maybe not even like last 5% of the range that you start to get that. Um, so it's basically you max it out and you get that. It's not like like a lot of synths that came later in the 80s or today where you have like a really fine gradient to uh, adjust that with. It's really kind of, there's one long, it's like short long, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's not like a lot of, um, and it's very snappy. The envelopes can be extremely snappy, snappier than you would think. Do you think that's because when they designed it, they were like, like, was there an appetite for pads? No, right. You're right. Do you know what I mean? People wanted to make, yeah. And I mean, if you look at, I mean, the only thing that comes close is like some of the string sounds uh, that you can do with it. And there's, there's presets on it. Most of the presets are very uh, plucky. You know, it's like guitar, clav, piano. There's a few others. There are a lot of them are like more like like plucked kind of sounds. So it really excels at those kind of sounds. Um, but there's just a lot of really interesting things about it that just aren't on synthesizers today. What is so different? Well, I guess, well, you know, a lot of it, I think, comes from not having any memory. A lot of things that would be buried in like a sort of like global parameter set in a modern synth or even like a synth from the 90s. Um, or even like 80s really are like right there in front of you. So for example, um, the response of the touch sensing is like right there as if like you would be adjusting it while you're playing. The the mix between the upper and lower sound set is right there. Um, things like, oh, like if you want to modulate pitch, that can be done with like velocity and all you know, after pressure all these things, that's all right there with big switches where it's really easy to kind of modify it while you're playing. Mm. So it's just things that seem like they would be in a global, I mean, they are literally global parameters, but they're right there in front of you. And like, think today, when we think global parameters, we're thinking like a sub menu nested somewhere like inside the instrument that where you're, you're going to change these things once and probably not again for months. Whereas they're right there. You're constantly, I, I'm constantly adjusting like the sensitivity, um, how it's modulating pitch with, you know, um, with the initial and after pressure and all that kind of stuff. I mean, maybe compromise isn't even the right word. Maybe it's more just the way things developed. It seemed like 
people didn't want to adjust these things as often. So designers started kind of tucking them away and putting the things that it seemed like people wanted more of, like right out in front of them. But do you think it's it's also a reflection of the the sea change in cost effectiveness? That the, the CS80 was from an era of like where synthesizers were, for want of a better term, for like the elite, you know, which is, they just, it, it wasn't a mass market product. And so it didn't have to be designed with so much cost in mind. Um, I guess, you know, how do you feel about that? Because that's, the, we live in a world where that's just not the case anymore. Oh, right. No, I think about that all the time. Yeah. In fact, even at the high prices that a CS80 commands today, they still sell below their original retail price. It's <laughs> something people don't realize. Adju- yeah. Adjusted for inflation, a CS80 was about 30K approaching that. Um, yeah. So still, they're still cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, right? So, you know, yeah, I mean, the market for them was probably, um, probably like mostly studios where you know, they would have instruments like this and that might attract a musician to come and record there mm. or to, you know, compose there. So, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, the market was just totally different. I mean, if you look inside this thing, you can kind of see why it would have cost that much to build. I mean, the the wiring harnesses alone are like a piece of art. It's just, and you just wouldn't do something like that today because people wouldn't, I mean, there's no actual added value to that. It looks beautiful when you open it up. Like I said, it's like, it looks like a work of art. In the end, you could have done the same thing a lot more easily today, just with the way we would produce circuit boards and wiring assemblies and that kind of thing. We've just gotten more efficient at it. And so you just wouldn't need to do that. We live in an amazing time. I mean, it's, I mean, I only have this because it's my life livelihood, you know, synthesizers is what I do. So I have nearly any synthesizer that I would ever want to look at and listen to and study and play. I'm just going to get it because it's what I do. But if it wasn't, then I wouldn't have this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would have one of the many other synthesizers, some of which I do have, that are wonderful as well. We have so many choices and, and it's kind of incredible. What goes through your mind when you like encounter a synth, you know, as a synth designer, like you go up to a CSAE or any of the other classic synths you may own, it's like, what are you literally thinking when you look at them? Initially, I just, I want to feel like, I want to try to understand what the magic is. Like, what is it about playing this instrument that sparks people so much? Like, what is it about this instrument that brought uh, Vangelis to buy seven of them? You know, like, that's a pretty... Do you really? That's, seven? I've, I've heard he had six or seven of them. Uh, yeah. So what is it? What is it that makes people feel so wonderful while they play it? Whether, and that's, I mean, it could go for anything. I mean, it, it could be a modern instrument. You know, a lot of people love the electron stuff, for example. So I have played all of the electrons. I've, I've uh, from the Digitone and Digitact to the, the analog four, the, the analog rhythm. I even, I, I've tried my damnedest at the Octatrack and failed. Uh, the new ones, the littler ones, uh, the model samples and model cycles, all of them. I mean, I, I have have either owned or had on loan for extended periods of time, all of them, and played them all and learned them all because thousands of musicians who love these things, who are just totally enamored with, I just want to know, I just want to know what is it about these that they love so much? 
what are they getting from these? What makes these so special? Mm. Do you have sort of, what are your major takeaways? Like looking at that modern equipment, you know, what, what are people getting right? What are people getting right? Whew, that is a big question. Well, I do enjoy the Digitone a lot. I also enjoyed the Digitac, although I, I'm not as much like sampling is sometimes like an extra step that I don't always feel like taking. Whereas the Digitone is just, you can create the sounds right there. So those instruments, both of them, and the level of programmability is unparalleled to anything that existed in hardware in the past. I mean, you go back and you look at even some of the most popular sequencers, for example, you look at like something like an Alasis MMT8 or some of the Roland sequencers. I think we've gone mega deep, you know, with the, with things we've just taken it like all the way as deep as it, maybe as it needs to go. I, I don't know. I guess we'll see. So yeah, I mean, that, that's probably the things that pushing in that direction is probably satisfied a lot of people's curiosity of like, well, what if, you know, we had a, you know, a sequencer where um, you could have the same note played differently each time the sequence cycles back around. And then, you know, they listen and they did that, which is, that's something that in modular is, is easy to program. That's just, that's part of modular. It's part of what makes it wonderful. When you first encounter these things, like, oh, well, you know, you can patch this, but not everybody's patching. Not, but not everybody wants that type of instrument. So in a drum machine, that was a pretty unique thing. And that, and that's just like the tip of the iceberg of the stuff that's going on in those, those, those machines. So, you know, obviously with modular, we got a lot, right? I mean, geez, it's just, I mean, for a minute, it was like looking around, trying to find like a a battered old ARP 2600 or like maybe a dope for basic system that somebody had like jettisoned at a pawn shop or something. And now, I mean, modular is, is everywhere. That's pretty great. I think, I think we got that right. It's the, the level of creativity and uniqueness from one company to the next. I mean, we haven't seen something like that in the music and in, music instrument industry since you know, when things like the CS80 were being built, things kind of got solidified. A few companies kind of rose to the top and they kind of drove the industry all to be the nineties. Hence, you know, things like the, you know, the groove boxes and the, you know, the, all the Roland and Yamaha products that people remember from that time period. Uh, sometimes when I try to think of all the different modules out there or the, or the ones that even just, even just the ones that just interest me and not everything out, just the ones that I'm interested in. I mean, I'm like, my God, it's just, mm. if, if I could rattle off like 25 modules that I've never even gotten a chance to try yet that I'm still kind of curious about. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. I think we got that right. I wanted to go back before we sort of talk about the current state of things. I'd love to ask you about the past. And like for you personally, where did you, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Asheville? And where did you, how did you come to synths and electronics? So I grew up in central Illinois, um, which is nothing like Asheville. It's a lot flatter. It's not a beautiful yeah. place. It's it's fine. <laughs> it's just not a beautiful place the way Asheville is. Well, how do you describe it? It's 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 very it's kind of barren. It's a lot of cornfields. Uh, when you drive on the highway, the highways are just are just they're so straight. I mean, you're just, you're just driving straight for like hours, and it's just flat on both sides. It's it's kind of like tornado country kind of thing. And and I got in the synth um, probably in a way that a lot of kids who grew up in the 80s did just through through listening to the radio and hearing, um, you know, like artists like Eddie Van Halen when he did Jump. And, you know, I was really into Van Halen and guitar. And then he's playing 
an Oberheim uh, OB, I guess it was an OBX of some sort, OBXA or something. Of course, at the time I had no idea. I just, mm. I saw it was this massive keyboard and he's playing it in the video and it's just kind of mind blowing, you know, it's like, whoa, this guy's the best guitarist in the world, obviously. And he's playing this keyboard. I'm interested. Uh, and then, you know, all of the stuff, I mean, prints, all the drum machines and whatnot, you were hearing it on the radio, maybe seeing it in a video on MTV or something. And that's kind of where it stopped. I mean, it wasn't like you could just go into a music store, or at least not where I live. You couldn't just go into a music store and find this stuff. It was, um, well, it kind of like what you were saying. It was like kind of a level. It, it kind of ties back to what you were saying about something like the CS80. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember going into the music store where I, I rented a guitar so I could start learning to play guitar. I don't remember seeing like an Oberheim in there or a Lindrum or anything. It was, they didn't have that stuff because probably because nobody in my town would have bought it. So why would they stock it anyhow? Mm. You know, probably if you went into a nice music store in Hollywood, you would have seen all that stuff at that time. But back then you wouldn't, have, you just didn't see it. They had, they had some, the best stuff they had was a nicer Fender guitar, for example. So yeah, so that's that's one way that it was pretty different and one way that things have changed quite a bit today. Most music stores you walk into are gonna have a full range of musical instruments and recording gear represented. Everything you could possibly need to make any form of music that you could possibly dream up, you could probably buy at even the most average music store in the United States today. Probably just over there as well. And so yeah, so it was different. So we didn't, I didn't have any idea where those things came from or what they looked like. I just was hearing them. And it wasn't really until a little later when I started understanding how records were made a little bit more. I was kind of getting into them and I bought, um, the library would sell records. I think they weren't, get, they weren't getting checked out a lot or maybe they were scratched up or something. They were really cheap. And I bought a copy of, of uh, Mort Sabotnik's Silver Apples. And that would have been probably like 88, 89. And, um, you know, of course I was completely dumbfounded by it. But also a little intrigued, like what is like this is is this music? I mean, you know, so you're like like nineteen eighty-nine, I'm what see, I would have been like whatever, like thirteen or something. I don't know. I was pretty it's I, I just did not make any sense to me, but it was also really intriguing. Like, oh well this is something that I haven't heard before. And all it said on the back was it mentioned that it was composed on the bukla. There was no pictures or anything. It, just said it was composing. What's a bukla? Okay, go to the library, look it up. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. B for bukla. <laughs> End of the line for like the, until, you know, another like whatever, five, six years pass and, and you know, the internet starts becoming more available. And um, yeah, so that was kind of like a lot. There's a lot of dead ends like that, I think, back then because you you could only research so far. You know, if the library didn't have a book about it, you were kind of left wondering, okay, all right. Guess I'll wait for the internet to be invented. Or just move on to the next thing. Yeah, just move on to the next thing. Were you drawn to Silver Apples of the Moon because it was cheap? Or is it, you were literally just like, flip, flip, flip. That's just a cool name. The cover. Yeah, I had a really cool cover. Um, that's how I bought a lot of records back then because I didn't know what any of this stuff was. It was just, they were all like a quarter or 50 cents. Mm. And we'd just go there and pick through, find some cool looking covers. And, you know, some were, some were interesting, some were total duds. But they still had cool covers, and that's the whole. Re that was the thing that brought you in, right? So you remember Bookler then? Do you? How do you then go from knowing that name to really appreciating what it is? What's kind of interesting is even once information was kind of flowing more, and 
you know, people were starting, you know, there was forums, not forums, uh, what, they were... Uh, a BBS or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, like email lists. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And people are talking about synthesizers and all that stuff. But even then, the Buchla stuff was still pretty mysterious. Um, you know, the weird thing was the company was still operational in some shape or form <laughs> through all of this, uh, or maybe not through all of it, but, you know, like, uh, I remember um, when the 200E came out, I'm pretty sure I read an article written by Bob Moog that was about it. It was like a review or something. And, um, but it was still, it was like, okay, well, that looks crazy. That's interesting. I need to figure out a way that I can check that out. But I mean, you know, what music store would have... A 200 e systems so yeah, even now <laughs> you know because this would have still been like 99 to whatever maybe not that late but like oh, i feel like that article would have been like early 2000s or something that i saw it in a magazine i'm pretty i mean maybe i'm mixing this stuff up but i'm pretty sure i read it bob, bob moog reviewed it um gosh i mean that was a big thing too right i mean magazines was where you got almost anything that you were going to figure out about what was out there, you got from magazines and you all had sound on sound, yeah. which was a really good one. And, and you couldn't, you could, you could sort of, you could get that in the States, but it was really expensive. So like electronic musician was like whatever, three, four bucks or whatever. That was always like, like $12 or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you know, it was, you could still stand in the, in the you know, the Walden books or whatever and, and read it. So it didn't really stop you. So there's a lot of that too. But even at the time, they wouldn't be writing much about Buchla. I can't. No, imagine. no, not then. No, there wasn't. I, I mean, the whole synth industry, because that's kind of the time when I got into it. And it, I remember I was reading Future Music magazines. That's what my brother had. Uh, you know, brother influences, and it's sort of. I mean, analog was a a distant memory at that yep. point. It was an it was an old bygone thing, and we were. You know, the, it was all just about what Roland and Korg and Yamaha were kind of pumping out at that time. And it was great gear. It just wasn't analog, a lot of it. Um, right, and right, it wasn't right. modular, certainly. It kind of. So it was a weird time. So I suppose it's, you, do you then, but you'd maintained an interest in, in since. It had obviously, something had awakened in you. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, like, one, and this is going to be kind of funny, but one one instrument that I could get my hands on a lot that I really liked were uh, these Farfisa organs. So I had a lot of those over the years um, in varying varying states of functionality. Um, they sound really great. You plug them into a guitar amp or a bass amp, they're mm. incredible sounding. Um, and so I had a lot of those. I had also gotten kind of, at that same time, I had also bought some uh, music concrete records. This is like going back to like 88, 89 when I found that Sabotnik record. That same library had some music concrete compilations. Um, and, and looking back on them now, I see the names that are on them and I recognize them, like Pierre Henry, for example. And um, these are pretty cool records. And they were, again, those were almost maybe even more intriguing to me because they were kind of like these strange like sound collages. So they had a lot of sample, like what I thought was sampling. Um, it's the late 80s, so samplers were huge at that time. So I thought they were samples. I didn't realize they were like cut up tape and everything until I learned a little bit about them and actually was able to find a book about music concrete at, at a library in Southern Illinois. And, um, and so I read that and it kind of went through and, and kind of talked about the history of it and like how it was done and all this stuff. And that was kind of, that was kind of uh, formative too, because that was, 
I mean, it was just kind of crazy thought to me like, oh, wait, these people were recording things to tape and then cutting pieces of tape and then rearranging them. It's like just so hard to fathom. Like I, you just, tape was always just like a station, you know, you put a cassette tape in your recorder and you hit record and that's it. it just it was just such a linear thing. The tape ran from start to finish. This idea of like going in and like cutting the tape into little pieces and rearranging it was kind of mind blowing, I mm. think. And, um, and you know, also keep in mind that the DAW hadn't really taken hold yet. So sampling like MPC or like what what was the the Insonic one, the ASR, like that kind of stuff, you know, was the closest you were going to get to that. And that kind of stuff was pretty unobtainable for someone my age at that time. But I did find a, um, I found this amazing reel-to-reel machine that was made by a German company. And I swear it was called the Superbola. I've looked for this brand right everywhere. I've never found another one. But this thing was incredible because it had built into it, had a, a splicing block built in, which was really cool. And it had this um, built-in sound-on-sound functionality. So you could record it in one channel and then you would you would hit the sound-on-sound button and you could re- play along with what was in that channel and record it over to the other channel. That was all built into it. So you didn't have to have the external mixer or anything. You just built in. And then the other cool thing is it had a built-in um, echo, which was not tape-based. Probably was BBD or something like that. Because the thing was pretty old. And um, I made a bunch of recordings with that. You know, I tried chopping them up and splicing them together, just like they talked about in the book. And it was a lot of fun. And I think I learned a lot. I mean, I don't think I was doing anything like that was actually that great, but it mm. was still a really fun learning experience. Um, also, it just sounded really good. You just plug a guitar straight into it and it sounded good. It was like distorted, really cool. Um, but eventually the motor in that thing died and I left it in the alley behind the house where I was living at the time because it just didn't seem like it was worth even fixing. Cause at that point, you know, you could just, I was like, oh, I'll find another one of these in another thrift store somewhere. I got it at the thrift store. Yeah. Oh, it was no. like $15 came with like a box of used tape. I just assumed I'd find another one, uh, but I never did. Never found another one exactly like that. So where does that, where are you at that point? You had a guitar, you've been like playing around with tape. How old are you and where are you? Are you serious about music in some way? So that would be like 93, 90, like maybe like 94, 95. And um, oh, the other one, the uh, I'm sure you remember this one, the Casio SK-1 mm. was another one that just, that was a very affordable synthesizer. But I mean, that thing like kind of changed the game for like when you're when you're younger, you know, I remember playing with the SK-1 the first time they had it at the mall. And this is going to, you're not even going to believe this, but I swear this is what happened. I walked up to it and I didn't know anything about it really. I mean, I just saw they had them set up so kids could play them. And I, I tapped the key. This, at this point, this thing's brand new. It just came out, whatever the year it came out. And I tapped the key and I hear, Aaron Masram. Aaron Masram. Aaron Masram. Aaron Masram. Aaron Masram was a kid who lived four houses down the block from me. What? <laughs> yeah. This is literally the first time I've ever played this thing. And it's literally saying the name, this kid just, he was about, he's maybe like a year older than me or something. He lived just, I mean, I'm not even joking, four houses up. It was kind of crazy. <laughs> I always remember that. And that, so, and then I, that's when I was like, oh, weird. Like this thing, you can actually put your own sounds into it. Maybe, oh, okay. This is, this is interesting. <laughs> but then, so you, 
like were you serious about music were you you know you were listening to music you had a guitar you were dabbling in music, but but to what degree were you kind of like music needs to be a part of my life what were you what were your aspirations at that point oh i mean i wanted to be a musician i wanted to be in a band um and i i i mean from the first time that i heard uh van halen or Prince, these records that they were playing on the radio when I would have been like, whatever, 10 or something. Um, I mean, I just, it was just totally captivating. Mm. And it was like all I, I thought about it constantly. And I mean, I begged my parents to let me take guitar lessons. And, um, you know, back then it was like, you didn't just go, I think because guitars were kind of more expensive, even a student level guitar was still pretty expensive back then. And so we rented a guitar because it was like, okay, well, are you going to stick with this? And you know, we'll yeah, yeah. rent you a guitar for a little while and try and learn some chords, that kind of thing. Um, it's different than today where I mean, you can go hundred bucks, you can get a pretty decent playing guitar to start with at least. So yeah, no, I had the guitar. I mean, I scratched all kinds of things up. Like a uh, um, buddy of mine played drums and was throwing out old drums that were broken. So I would kind of grab those and I had a drum set that I had assembled from pieces from different people that didn't want them anymore. There was all kinds of random keyboards, you know, like just whatever you could get your hands on. One thing that I really liked was my dad had this stereo component that was, um, it was to make your records, your studio albums sound like they were live. I had reverb. Made by pioneers. It was just a reverb, right? <laughs> a spring reverb. Um, but I had, you know, kind of pulled that out from my stereo and I plugged my guitar into that and play it, which sounded awesome. And yeah, starting bands with people that went nowhere, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Recording any with any, we, we didn't really have, you know, that's the other thing today, you know, you, you record a record that sounds like it was made in a studio that would cost whatever, like $800 a day in, you know, a room the size of this room. So, but, so at that time it was mostly like boom boxes with the mics built in kind of thing. And then, yeah, there was a guy who got one of the four tracks. That's a little later. It was a guy, a friend of mine got a four track. So he became like the de facto studio. Like everyone would go to his house to record their songs. <laughs> the Steve Albini <laughs> of the street. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I'm sure it must've driven him crazy. Now that I think back, like we would just like line up to like, yeah, I mean, he was pretty patient with us. Now that I think of it, he would he he'd be he'd be hyped. He'd be like, "Yeah, come over, record your song." And I'm thinking, "My God, I mean, everybody I knew was going to this guy's house to use his four track." <laughs> <laughs> Must have been like an endless stream of of people just coming in there to record their crappy songs to his what seemed like amazing four track. I mean, that kid, he's getting his ten thousand hours in though, so he's you know he's going to be like decent by the time he's like quitting quitting high school. So then, so there's all this guitar stuff, but when do you, when do you first get your hands on a proper actual synth? Proper actual synth. I mean, probably the first, and then some people wouldn't consider this a synth, but the first thing that I got would be the Farfisa combo organ. Mm. Um, had a few of those, but the one that was really nice was actually sold to me from a, a nice guy that I worked with. He was in a, uh, a cover band. And they did, I mean, this is going to sound insane, but they had this list of songs. They probably had 500 songs. And if they did all of the top 10 hits from this very specific year period, and they would recreate them really well. Like they had a, an old an old uh, PA system that had like reverb built in and stuff. I'm pretty sure it was like a sure vocal master kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I went to their space to get it. 
they had a few of these farfises because they used them in a bunch of the songs and they were very into like playing the songs the way they had been played back in the 50s or whatever. I, I can't remember the time period. I guess it probably would have been more like the 60s. Um, but they had a, a farfise and they sold it to me for a hundred bucks. So that was the first um, like nice synthesizer. Although I'm sure some people would argue that's not a synthesizer, that's an organ. Mm. Um, but you know, you could make a lot of different sounds with that. And for a hundred bucks, it was, I mean, there's a lot to be done. I mean, if, you know, for one, it had a hundred percent polyphony. I mean, every key that you held down made a sound. Mm. Um, so that could be, uh, that was actually pretty, pretty interesting. Um, and so I was in a, 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 by then I was in a band with uh, the, these two women and one of them played keyboards. I played guitar and the other played drums. And that kind of, the Farfisa kind of actually led us into a lot of other synths because the Farfisa was so dodgy when you take it to different gigs. Um, and so we started looking for different stuff to use instead of that led us to, to all sorts of things. Uh, you know, just whatever you could get at the time for a few, you know, a couple hundred bucks. So at that time that was rolling Junos, believe it or not. We had a few Juno sixes, uh, never a one Oh six. We had sixes, sixties. Um, and all this stuff, we'd just play until it stopped working. And at that point I would try to repair it. And I, my knowledge wasn't really that great at that point yet. So if I couldn't repair it, it would just get like, I don't even know, like given away or something. <laughs> oh no. Oh, um, no. Yeah. Korg poly six, like all that stuff was just the cheap stuff at the time. You know, this is like mid to late nineties. So it's just whatever was pretty cheap at the, you know, I'm not even joking the pawn shop Midwest buy and sell in Chicago. They're still open to this day, I believe. And that guy, he, he loved guitars. He hated synthesizers. <laughs> so anytime a synthesizer would come in, he just wanted to get it out of there as fast as possible. He didn't know how they worked. Um, yeah, I mean, I bought DX sevens for 50 bucks, you know, cause I, he just didn't want them. He, he, he didn't know anything about them and he didn't want to learn anything about them, but they would come in and he would take them in on trade. And then it'd be like myself and my friend Ryan going in there like, oh, what's, how much you want for this Korg Poly 6? You know, oh, that thing, I, I don't even know if that works. You know, and he'd be grumpy <laughs> asshole about it. You know, he hated us because he didn't want to sell those things. He wanted to sell guitars. That's where he thought, he's like, that's where the money is. Oh, and Sonic Mirages had quite a few of those because again, it was a, it was a sampler and I believe the first one I got was from him, but it had no disc with it. So he almost gave it to me. I mean, I feel like I, he, I feel like it was like 10 bucks or something. He, he couldn't get it to do anything. You needed a disc to even get that thing to go. The operating system wasn't built into it, it was on a disc. And so that led me down this big hunt to find a, a way to get that thing running. And I met a bunch of people really early, like, like internet group about the Mirage. And they, we started trading disc, you know, I bought a few discs, traded disc, and I amassed like a massive collection of Insonic Mirage disc over like a period of time. So yeah, the Mirage, we used that, not so much in any bands or anything. I just liked that thing for some reason. <laughs> it's just cool. It was a cheap sampler. It was really hard to use, like a two digit display. You're like trying to like truncate a sample. You Oh, it was, it was hexadecimal. It was like a hexadecimal, the display gave all your values in hexadecimal because it was only two digits, so, yeah. I'm not sure that's, that's useful in a way, like just, I mean, I think the Akai S612 did it perfectly with a slider. That thing ruled. That thing was way cooler, way better. Yeah. And it sounds awesome. And yeah, oh, the sliders to set the start and end time. God, genius. Yeah. yeah. Scott Yeager did that with the, with the, with the, um, uh, 
I always remember the name of the expander is Sound of Thunder. Oh, how come I can't remember that? That's terrible. I can't remember that. If he's listening, I'm sure he's judging you. But Sorry, it's, uh, Scott. As we've said, there's thousands of Eurorack modules. How are you supposed to remember all their names? But that one is really cool, so it's worth remembering. And it, and it had the sliders for start and end time. And if you pushed them past each other, it would go in reverse. So, yeah, no, I was in, I played in bands and stuff. And I, I mean, I was definitely into synthesizers then and, and anything Echoes. I don't know why Echoes. I mean, I, I would, any Echo I could find, I would buy it. It didn't matter how <laughs> shitty it was. It could be like an echo that was built into like some crappy DJ mixer. If it was like under 50 bucks, I w- it was worth a try. I've had, I've owned so many different echoes. I just, each one is like unique in its own way, special way. The ones I really searched after back then though, were the Effectrons because they had that infinite button on them. And that button was really, really awesome. But you And you could attach it to a foot switch and like play a guitar chord in and hit the infinite button. So cool. Very, very cool. <laughs> We, let's see, we, we were in Chicago, then we went to New York City and got really into synthesizers. I mean, I, we were, I was pretty into that stuff, even in Chicago, though. But that's like the time period, um, yeah, like you said, like all the Korg, Roland stuff, Yamaha stuff was out. Like the, the Korg started doing the Electribe, the ER1, the EA1. That's like late 90s, right? Yeah, it's kind of like early noughties. No, you're probably right. But I feel like it is early noughties. It's like just that turn of the millennium. Right. You probably are right. Because the first one that I saw that was really cool out of that group was the Roland JP8000, the blue plastic Mm, synth. With the sliders. And there was a band in Chicago that had one of those. And I remember the bass player played it. And I noticed like when he was playing it, he would just hit one key, but there was, like a riff would come out. And um, afterwards I was talking about it and, and he's showing me like, oh, that's this this phrase thing that you can do. So he would record in all these riffs. And since he was playing bass, he would just hit the key while he's playing bass. And then the the synth riff would play out in the uh, into the PA. I thought that was pretty amazing. That thing was that thing was very cool when it came out because it had all the sliders and stuff and yeah. all the stuff before then, you know, it didn't have the sliders and whatnot. So like you said, I mean, analog was kind of like a memory at that point. So you were either finding something old and really, really out of shape because no one was caring for this stuff and no one was, it wasn't worth repairing at that point so much. So usually the stuff was pretty dodgy and like not working great. That thing came out. I mean, obviously was way out of my price range at that time, but it was kind of mind-blowing to see a product in like a guitar center that had all those sliders on it. And then after that, walk into the guitar center and you see the the Moog Voyager. That was it. There was nothing else. There was no other analog stuff like that that would have been in like a, a corporate, like big guitar center type music store, Sam Ash Guitar Center. You probably have the similar things over in the UK. Absolutely. There would have not... The only, there was the shop, I worked at the shop called Turnkey and it had a vintage synthesizer museum, mm-hmm. but they were there. They, they did the, the Voyager and I guess that was 2002, wasn't it? Or around mm-hmm. then. And it was, you're right. It was just like a standalone, like it's the Mini Moog back. I don't think the Mini Moog was as common knowledge as it was now, just in the same way that all this knowledge is so freely available now. And it kind of wasn't at this time. Yeah. Yeah, seeing that, yeah, you saw that. It was, I mean, it was there was just nothing else like it in the shop. Actually, well, let me, let me walk that back just a little bit because I had gotten um, actually really early on, at least here in the states, the Novation stuff. Yeah, was also really the Novation. Uh, I want to say Nova, but there was yeah. I feel like there was one before that. Uh, well, there's the base station. Oh yeah, the base station. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so um, actually, my my friend Rob Lowe, who you probably uh, you probably know Rob, um, Lycans, 
uh, Robert A. A. Lowe. Yes, yes, of course, yes. He was in a band called the 90 Day Men, and they had gotten their hands on a bass station. I remember them using, I saw them play at Lounge Axe maybe, or I just remember hearing it. I was like, whoa, what is that? And you know, it's so small, you couldn't even see it really from, you know, if you were in the crowd or whatever, you wouldn't know what they were playing because the thing was tiny. And they showed it to me afterwards as, whoa, that is crazy. I mean, the base station was pretty big. You're right. That, and it was not expensive. Mm. Even back then, it was pretty affordable. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the base station was a big one. It's before its time, in a sense. Ironically, it was, it was after its time, but then it was before the, <laughs> it felt that like everyone was, was ready for it, you know? Right, right. It's like, who was at that point in that year? Because that would have, I mean, gosh, that's like late 90s or something. Yeah. Who in that year was thinking, you know what would be a really good idea? Let's make a synthesizer where you can only play one note at a time. And it's all analog and it's battery powered. And it's made out, it's small, it's made out of plastic. Mm. You know, essentially, the entire Korg Volca series. Yeah, yeah. More like, like what gets released on a monthly basis nowadays. Like. <laughs> I know. It was crazy. It was, that thing hit hard because I think because it was so affordable, I saw more, I definitely saw a, a few more base stations and mm. uh, floating around. Um, and there were, you know, there were people running doper systems even back then. I just didn't know really what they were. Um, but I've, I've tell the story a lot. The first modular that I saw performed on was Jim O'Rourke did a set at Lounge Axe and he played his electronic music suitcase is what we called it. It was actually a doper P6 system. And I don't know exactly what was in it, but it was definitely a P6. And he had it um, kind of on its back on a, a milk crate and did a, a, a live set with it. Uh, but again, you know, this is like, I didn't know Jim, so I couldn't just walk up to him and start, you know, asking him questions. I just saw wires poking out of the top, and I saw that it was roughly the size of a suitcase, and I saw him turning knobs and playing it. And mm. it's like, what is that? I gotta figure out what that thing is. And <laughs> it just it just took a while. I mean, that was probably 96 or so, I think. Yeah, it just took a while to figure it out. Like, what was Jim playing? And then I worked, uh, actually I interned, well, whatever, sort of interned, hung around a guy who did a lot of uh, refurb work for musicians in Chicago. His name was Soren. He was actually one of the engineers that was involved in developing the original uh, DAT player with, at Sony. Very smart guy, incredible engineer. And he would let me hang out in his shop and help him. Like he would give me, like he be refurbing like a, a console, for example. He would tell me something like, disassemble all these sliders and clean them with this with this solution and then re reassemble them. Like, he just give me jobs. He never paid me, <laughs> but he did teach me a lot of stuff and he would repair my stuff for me. He would help me repair my stuff. Okay. So that, that, which was really honestly at that time was more than enough payment because it was, it was hard to get stuff like that worked on. If you had like, you know, like he'd help me fix the Farfisa, for example. Yeah. But yeah, he would have all kinds of stuff in his place, like busted up old Roland TB303s. Um, he had several 303s in there. And I remember this specifically because I thought later, because I'm, I'm pretty sure someone made like a like a new drop-in replacement for the like the, the microcontroller that's in that. There's a bunch of 303s on a stack once. I said, like, what, what's wrong with these? Sorry. He's like, oh, the, the computer chip went bad. The microcontroller went bad. So he's like, you can't get it anymore unless you find another one and, you know, rob that part off of it. So they were just, he's like, you never know someday. And he's like, they were just like a stack, like three or four of them just on a shelf somewhere. And I'm, you know, maybe now he resurrected those at this point. Um, but yeah, that guy was cool. He taught me a bunch of stuff about, you know, how to use, you know, oscilloscope, soldering iron, that kind of stuff. So I learned a lot working there. Some of the work was a little tedious. So like at times you'd be like, oh, man, 
wish I was getting paid for this three hours I spent, you know, scrubbing down the inside of this mixing console or something. But it was cool to just learn that stuff. You know, you could, some of that stuff's really hard to pick up from a book. You know, you got to kind of mm. just go do it. Um, where were you? Where was this? Where were you based? Oh, that was still in Chicago. Oh, so the reason, I'm sorry, I'm like just all over the place here. Uh, stream of consciousness, memory, <laughs> relapse. Uh, so the reason I mentioned that, so he had... One day when I went in, he had a doper system in there. It was a monster case and it was full of modules. And I, whoa, Soren, what is that? He says, well, this Jim, Jim O'Rourke's system, his modular system. And I said, oh, well, what's it doing here? He said, well, Jim doesn't want to play modular anymore. He doesn't want to play synthesizer anymore. He just wants to do guitar stuff. And you know, if you know anything about his career, he does kind of jump around like that. Like he'll do like a bunch of synthesizer stuff. Then he'll spend like two records making like, just like finger style guitar, like guitar works. And um, so he's like, so I bought it off him, but I'll sell it back to him. And if, you know, when he wants it again, like he said that this had happened to him many times where, you know, Jim decided he didn't want anything, something anymore. So he'd buy it. And then like a year or two later, he'd come back. Hey, you still got that, you know, modular synth I sold you. Yeah, that's over here. You want it back? But I didn't get to play with it because, you know, it was Jim's and it was like, kind of like, you know, this is, you can't mess with that. You know, it's his thing. I'm just holding it for him for a little while. But it was a monster case. I do remember that because mm. it was, it was huge. Yeah, yeah. Way bigger than the uh, suitcase that he was playing on stage at Lounge X. But then how do you get to Moog? Well, that's where the Voyager, that's why I mentioned seeing the Voyager. I, of course, knew who Moog was. Me and my friends knew who um, Bob Moog was. And, but, you know, we didn't know that he still had a business which is understandable because at that point it was called Big Briar. Yeah. It's just making the theremins and a few of the, the Mografogers. And the history of it, how it goes, is Mike Adams had, had bought the company and had managed to get the name back. And I guess the story that I was always told when I worked there was that they had already built, the, the Voyager had been ready to go. They didn't have the Moog name. They didn't want to launch the Big Briar Voyager. <laughs> they wanted to launch the, the, the Moog, Mini Moog Voyager. And they so they waited it out a little bit. And eventually got the name back, and then it was launched. You know, I wasn't working there at that point, but I had seen, the, like I said, I saw the Voyager in, in a music store, and like there was just nothing else like it. I mean, it just it was huge, had all the all the the panel controls. It had that strange touch surface in the center that mm. made no sense to me. I mean, I was like, "What is this?" Um, which that's actually a funny story about that that I learned while I was working there was that that was based on a conductive paint that Bob actually mixed up himself. Um, it was like a custom paint that he had kind of developed that, that was conductive. And that's how that, that's how he came to, um, and that, so another story related to that, Prince once called in wanting a, a purple Voyager, which we were willing to do, but he wanted his, he wanted the touch plate in the center to be purple with his logo in it. Wow. And um, <laughs> they couldn't do it because oh, wow. they only had the cut, the only paint color was the black. Because it, it was the work. special paint, yeah. yeah it's so, and then what I was told is that he, he that at that point, because he couldn't get it in the custom purple color with his logo printed on it, he just he was like he was out. He just didn't oh want it. Oh my god! But I think he later got a Voyager in. Good. I feel okay, like I've good. seen pictures of him in a, in his studio with a Voyager. Is that also why they did Mo did the little fatty in like? When the little fatty was in purple, maybe it wasn't when you were there, but there was a, a oh, little that. fatty in purple and green. Yep. And it, the purple one, I always thought of Prince. And I wondered if was that a concession to Prince was just like... Potentially. <laughs> yeah. Anybody. I mean, that, that was, yeah, the aluminum extrusion and you can anodize all these cool colors and purple and green are pretty easy colors to anodize. So, mm. um, yeah, they brought in a bunch of colors, black, 
green. I, I remember they had samples for all these different colors. I'm not sure why purple and green were settled on. Um, it's, it is kind of a, yeah, you would think a blue and, and, and red or something would be the first like, like the SH-101, but, but, you know, you've got to differentiate yourself. Like this. <laughs> I think the Voyager led me to Moog, though, honestly. We took a camping trip down here in western North Carolina. Oh, right. Yeah, now this story Kelly could confirm. So we, we, we flew into Asheville, the Asheville airport, which is small today, but was even smaller then. And there was, you know, the Citizen Times, which is our newspaper here. There's a, there was a uh, Citizen Times newspaper, and the front page of it was a picture of Dr. Bob Moog. And this is, I'm literally, I've just gotten off the flight. I didn't know they were in the Asheville area at the time. We were coming here to go camping in western North Carolina. We were meeting some friends. They were going to pick us up from the airport, and we were going to drive out and go camping. And I see the, uh, the newspaper. I see Bob Moog's picture. So, of course, I'm drawn to it. Like, whoa, Bob Moog's on the front page of the paper? What's going on? He had just passed away. Oh, he my He passed goodness. away uh, that previous evening 2005 yeah yeah so i, oh, I flew in saw the newspaper oh, bob moog just passed away that's crazy i didn't even know bob moog was here in Asheville. so kelly says oh if moog is still a company and they're in Asheville, maybe you should call them and see if they're ever hiring and so i did called him and uh the salesperson there uh, at the time siobhan answered i think she still works there yeah i said are you are you all hiring she says i don't know maybe um <laughs> Let me uh, let me find Lee. Lee was the production manager at the time. She goes finds him. Well, he might be hiring. When can you come come in for an interview? I'm calling from New York City. I said, um, well, when do you want me to come in? He's like, oh, about next Wednesday. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Hang up. I literally rode a bus down to Asheville, New York, and like to go to this interview. I mean, I didn't have any idea what the job was. I didn't even know if they had a job. I was just like, hey, Mo's going to interview me. Like, I'm going down there. I don't have much money so i drove bus down there and stayed with my friends um who lived kind of close they were like maybe 30 minutes away in a smaller town called marshall and i stayed with them they gave me a ride to the interview and um yeah it was, it was yeah it's kind of crazy i just wanted the job that bad i was like okay how did the interview go what was what was the process <laughs> the process was so i mean probably so different than what it is there today so i mean i just uh i told them that i knew a lot of stuff that probably I didn't, I wasn't lying. It was just that the reality was I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. Yeah. And I told him I knew how to use oscilloscopes and voltmeters. I could, I, I can read schematics, I told him all this stuff. And, you know, they took me into engineering room and the guy that was working there at the time, Mike Pio, he pulls out a big schematic. He points to some things like, show me a summing node, you know, show me a voltage follower, show me a, any asked me to show him all these different types of circuits. And I probably got like maybe 60% of them right. Probably a lot of stuff that he was showing me. He was like, oh, you should know what this is if you're saying that you know how to do all the stuff that you're saying you know how to do. But I knew some of it. I just didn't know all of it. And he, they ended up offering me a position on the, uh, the production line uh, building. Actually, the little fatty hadn't started getting produced yet it was the um they were just starting to do they were starting to get ready to make the little fatty and so they offered me a position um building little fatties eventually once Amazing. that line got going but that was a whole other story like it was like a, i you know of course rushed right down and 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 uh to start working there and then you know there was tons of problems getting that line up and running and and um it, it was pretty a pretty wild wild time you know you, you gotta remember the company then was it was like 19 people or something like that so it was very small actually it wasn't much bigger than what make noise is right now yeah 
that's crackers. And it was it was selling globally at that point. You know, the little fatty was the little fatty eventually did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Little fatty, you know, strange. I mean, I remember so many strange things happened around the little fatty just because I think it was their first attempt to really make something that would be you know, the Voyager was available worldwide. I mean, you could get Voyagers in the UK, I'm sure. But it was still at that price point where it was kind of like what you were talking about earlier with, you know, this something like the CS80 or, or uh, you know, even like a, or a Fairlight or a Synclavier or something like that, where it was just like a very select subset of musicians that were actually going to buy a Voyager. And a little fatty was supposed to be for a bunch of other musicians that wanted the Voyager, but maybe weren't quite there yet. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was huge. It was huge. If, if it gives you any indication, like the Voyager shipped one or two at a time, the little fatty shipped four at a time. So when, a, when they would make an order up, it'd be in multiples of four. So yeah, it was a pretty big step for the company. So I worked at Moog for about three years and, and um, they started doing the Moog guitar, uh, which is an amazing technology. Uh, it just wasn't really a product that spoke to me. I, I didn't do little fatties for very long. I eventually was the lead calibrator on the Voyager line. So I would like train people on Voyagers and stuff. But, you know, the company's small at that point. So you do jump around a lot. You know, I, I also answered a lot of tech support, stuff like that. And eventually they were doing the guitar. They were gearing up to do the guitar. And I was put on that detail. I was supposed to help get the guitar line going, like the production line, I think. The guitar as a as like an as a product as an instrument, it just didn't speak to me in any way. I got kind of depressed about it. Like I wanted to, I liked working on Voyagers. I loved the Voyagers, great instrument. I liked working on Fatties, the pedals. I loved all that stuff. It was great. The guitar just didn't speak to me, and it kind of got to this point where I had to make a decision. I was like, oh, I just don't know. They really want me to move on to the guitar line. I know that's what they want me to do. I really can't see myself spending my days working on these things. <laughs> And, and so I decided to leave and try to uh, get work doing printed circuit board layout because I like running the CAB program. I had taught myself uh, a CAB program and I was really enjoying making circuit boards and stuff. Being kind of a, you know, the same kind of person that would leave a really a perfectly good job in New York City and ride a bus down to a, some random tiny town in Western North Carolina and apply for a job where I didn't even know if there was actually a job, what the job was, if there was one. I had no idea what it paid. I left Moog to try to become a person who developed printed circuit boards for people. Now, I had no college degree for this. I had no real experience, which I quickly found that most of these companies wanted some level of experience. Uh, do you have a portfolio? Is a common question. Um, <laughs> I had no portfolio. <laughs> of course, I've already left Moog, so it's kind of done over there. Like, oh my God, like this is, well, what did I do? I guess, you know, that's just not the smartest choices. But uh, in an attempt to develop a portfolio, I started trying to develop some modules that I didn't think I would sell. I just figured that these could be something that I could show someone and show them, oh, here's my work. This is a module that I designed. And I did the circuit board for it and it works well. One of, on my birthday, I ordered something that I just really wanted. It's not a very complicated, very simple circuit actually. But um, at the time there was no transformer and diode based ring modulator. Um, Doper didn't make one in other words, because I mean, it was either Doper or there was like 12 companies, you know, Doper analog systems. Plan B had done the, the, the oscillator, which was incredible. Um, and then Mike Brown had done a couple of his modules. Uh, I think the the AFG had, yeah, the AFG had come out because we worked out a deal. We traded Mike a, uh, he wanted a little fatty and a, and me and a couple other folks who were working at Moog at that time traded him some AFGs 
we're little fatties. And actually my IFG is signed by Mike, which is kind of cool. Oh, that's so it's, really and amazing. it has the yellow circuit boards, which was like the first ones he did, yeah. Damn, I had one of, I had one of those. <laughs> Not signed, but I had one with the AFG rules. Boards. It's such yeah, a cool, I mean, it's huge. And people would say, well, it's so big for what it does. And it's like, well, but what it does is pretty awesome. <laughs> it's pretty big sounding. <laughs> it's right? huge. Right, exactly. It sounds like more than one VCO sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah, they're, you know, just like, there's, okay, well, this doesn't really exist. So I'm going to make one. And for my birthday, I, I had saved up some cash and I ordered enough to make 20. My idea was I'll make 20 of these and I'll sell 18 of them and keep two. And this this will be kind of like me trying to like start something. And that was it. So I, I tried to sell the 18 and thankfully uh, Matrix Synth picked up the photo. I made this little video for it too, which is still on our YouTube page. And Matrix Synth picked it up and all 18 sold like really fast. Again, I mean, you got to understand like today, there's not much of a thirst for a simple ring modulator like that. But at the time, it was just like, no, there, there was nothing else that really sounded like this. So people who were in the Eurorack were excited. It's like, oh, whoa, this is something different that isn't in the Doper catalog. I want it. So I sold the 18 like really fast. And then um, I got asked to play uh, All Tomorrow's Parties. Actually, you probably know All Tomorrow's Parties. Mm. Yeah, at, at Butlins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just be, it's, again, not because I was anybody, but just because I knew somebody uh, who really liked my music, who was somebody, basically. It was, uh, I think... It was either Dirty Three or Explosions in the Sky. So we were over there playing, and then we stayed, and we were hanging out. And I, and, um, I was just to give you an idea, like, when, when this was, remember internet cafes where it'd be, like, a laundromat? And then there'd be, like, computers that you could, like, rent out to, like, check your email. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I haven't checked my email in, like, weeks. You know, I've been like, here in Europe doing this all tomorrow's parties, and then Kelly and I were having fun, like, in Italy. And I, I go to this this internet cafe and like whatever pay my like however many euros to get like 15 minutes of time to check my email and in my inbox is this email from sean cleary and Ah, he's saying i'd like to buy 50 of your mod demods that's it It was like very short like you know let me know what the price is and when you can you know get them to me it's like whoa what 50 god this is insane like like my mind is just like racing like 50 that's wow that's that's some like that's like some money. Okay, that's cool. But wait, how do I build 50 of these things? That's a lot to build. Okay, well, I don't really have a job, so I guess that could be good. <laughs> so I emailed back. I'm like, yes, I can build you 50. And I like came up with a price off the top of my head, like pretty random, like no business sense whatsoever. Wow. Probably way <laughs> less than I should have charged. Cool. And then I like threw out a date that was, again, also quite random. <laughs> I can have these ready for you in this amount of time. <laughs> and of course, it was actually like really, really, like a ridiculous amount of work that I hadn't really anticipated. And um, oh, the other thing was he didn't want the black panels because I had done the black panel, the black and gold panel. He didn't want that. He's like, we don't use black panels in your rack, so you got to get silver panels. Um, here's where you can get them. And it wasn't Metal Photo of Cincinnati yet even. It was this other company that was doing them. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't drill holes. So you had to punch your own panels. So like you know found like an old metal punch and punched them all and stuff yeah. manually great right right <laughs> so so anyhow they so you're I'm, I'm coming around to the format jumbler i swear this is the most roundabout i'm not usually <laughs> this cloudy i think i feel like you're drawing this out of me but yeah so so the the 50 i delivered him the 50 mod mods eventually and um was maybe paid me quickly which was just astonishing it was like wow like i can't believe like I sold these and like made this money. That's incredible. Mm. 
is an incredible feeling. You know, it's like I did this thing and then like someone bought it. You know, being a musician, trying to be a musician most of my life up to that point, you know, you're like walking around the club after the set trying to get people to buy your CD or something. And it's like, they like, they can't be bothered. You know, it's like so hard, you know, to make money as a musician. I mean, I still remember that to this day. Like the, the, the amount of satisfaction you have from selling, like say you sold 10 CDs at a gig. I mean, you're just like, oh my God, I sold 10 CDs. This is an incredible yeah. feeling, you know? And um, so this was kind of like that, that same kind of feeling. I did something. Somebody wanted it and they they bought it and they bought a lot of them. Like, this is an incredible feeling. Okay, like, cool, what's next? <laughs> you know, like, so I emailed him. I was like, hey, like, I have these other modules I'm making and I'm, you know, what else should I make? And, you know, you got to, I mean, it's just, things were just different then because there's just no one else making stuff. And he says, well, you know, Doper has a low pass gate, but, you know, it doesn't really have that, that Bukla sound. And, um, you know, so make, can you make something like that? I had no idea. I was like, yes, of course, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and so that kind of like led me back to that Bukla path again, but that was a long path. You know, they, at that point, you know, it wasn't all the, the knowledge that there is on the forums now where it's like, this is the back troll you want. Here's the original circuit. This is what you need to do to make it work. All this stuff that's documented really well now wasn't documented. So it led me down this path of trying to figure out like, well, what does the low pass gate even sound like? It's like, I, I can't get one. Like, I'm not going to just find a music you still hanging out. Okay, like I gotta figure this out. So, it, you know, it, talking to a lot of people, trying to scrounge up circuits, um, pictures of the old, uh, the the actual modules inside and out, all that kind of stuff. That was all taking a lot of time. In the meantime, I needed some some quick cash. So I said to Sean, "What else is there? Something else I can make that's like really fast and easy, just keep me going." He says, "Well, actually." Um, a lot of people getting into URAC already have Serge systems or Bukla systems. They need a way to interface, but it can't be expensive. It needs to be cheap. And uh, I said, all right, I'm doing it. That's a format jumbler. This is basically him saying he has these customers that have Serge systems or uh, modular, uh, Moog modular systems, and they want URAC. They want that wild new Eurorack thing, which wasn't really that wild at that point, but it was mm. more wild maybe than the Serge system they've been playing for the last 20 years. You know, some of these people, his customers, they they never stopped playing modular. You know, they had the modules when they came out in the 70s and the 80s, and they kept playing them all through the 90s. They were just not as as popular. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so they, I made the format jumblers basically on his request. Obviously, it didn't, he didn't ask for it to look as wacky as it did, but... He, no, it wasn't like any it. choice. He didn't really <laughs> we should talk about panel design and sort of like, I guess the module that intrigues me the most is maths, of course, the, the, like the, your most notorious module. Tell me the story of making it. How, how did you come up with it? And particularly that, that dang panel. Like, how did, you, how did you design your panels? How do you? Right. Okay. Yeah. So the module, see, Doper had the quad um, AR generator which was really cool. That was a really awesome module, but was kind of big, admittedly, and, and could be a little bit unruly to use because there was so much there. Bananalog, Seth, the guy Seth ran Bananalog. He had the, um, the SVS. That's an original one right there. Yeah, yeah. I just was like, I thought I'd, this was to my side, but I have an original, very original red math. That's cool. Um, I don't know, it's like 185. What, what does, was it 28? No, it's 581. I don't know what that signifies. Is that literally the 581st? Yeah, yeah. So that it would literally be the, is just sequential numbering on them. Yeah, yeah. Just seem, I don't, again, I don't know much about that kind of stuff, so I just wrote numbers on the back so I'd know, like, if it was, which one it was. I mean, now we have, like, a whole system of tracking stuff 
that smart people have come up with. And <laughs> if you buy a module and you have a problem with it, we can look at like what production run that module came out of, who calibrated it, who built it. All that stuff is documented to where we can find it, which is super helpful for tracking down problems, you know, bigger problems. You know, if you if you don't have that kind of detail, stuff can just start going wrong and you're just, you're just trying random crap. You're just throwing stuff at the wall until something fixes it. But if you have that knowledge, you can kind of pinpoint. We're, we're dealing with a problem right now where we had um, uh, this a fail that, and it's, it's something we've been building for four or five years. Suddenly this big run of fails and, and we, we were able to track down that it's, 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 we haven't, we're not totally certain, but we're pretty certain it was actually a bad batch of, of capacitors. And um, none of these have gone out into field yet. They've been being held. But I think because it's all like tracked so tightly, like those units have been quarantined and like we've been working, like trying to figure out what's going on with them. Like that kind of stuff is pretty nice when you're making stuff for more than like 50, 100 people. Otherwise, you can end up with like people having like um, a lot of stuff that doesn't work. So yeah, back then it was just me. So I was just like, uh, it's number 581. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> couldn't tell you any other details about that. I couldn't tell you the data manufacturer or anything. <laughs> there isn't much on it. I, I can't remember if there's even like a little phrase on the edge. You know, sometimes you've got like little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there is one on that. Is there? What is the phrase? Uh, hang on. <laughs> the phrase is hi mom oh right of course <laughs> they, that's the oldest and best yeah this is dated 2009 i got this from schneider's laden yeah in the second dealer that we ever added yeah like he's talking about next steps after sean's bought some stuff and i'm like oh my gosh well if i want this to be my job i need to find someone else to sell it to andreas schneider <laughs> yeah, god bless him <laughs> he was the second guy yeah no right people don't realize like you for europeans for a while that was everybody was just going to berlin you know like you're yeah. in the uk you were ordering stuff from berlin because there just yeah. wasn't any dealers yet until um the fellow who just i think oh my gosh post modular modular post modular i was gonna say modular post post modular yeah he was a really early dealer for us as well i remember he he he, he contacted me maybe a few months after schneider maybe maybe a little longer Great. I never, unfortunately, I don't think I've ever gotten a chance to meet him, but he was always a nice person to deal with. Yeah, email. he was. Uh, I met him. I went to his house. I bought, I can't remember what That's I bought. Where he I sold bought, stuff from. I, remember I bought a module and I literally went to his house in like South London. He had a lovely house, lovely person. And he went, took me over to a cupboard and sort of opened it up. And it was a bit like, yeah. in, in retrospect, it was a bit like going to um, Ollivander's one shop in Harry Potter because it wasn't, you know, he's got yeah, long hair. It's, there's a sort of old English vibe to it. And then, yeah, he just like turns around, pulls out the cardboard box and there's your, yep. your bond, sir. You know, but it's, yeah, uh, I remember him telling me that he was storing this stuff. Like he's like, I've got it everywhere. It's under my bed, it's on, in cupboards and stuff. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. I didn't get, yeah. I didn't get that tour. Um, it was just the cupboard. <laughs> but um, so also it says long live rise on the, on the PCB right in the corner. It says long live rise. Long live rise. Hmm. Oh, wait. Oh, actually, that might be a reference to Kelly ran a program at um, Warren Wilson College called RISE. It was a program that addressed uh, um, sexual assault on campus. Yeah, that's probably what that is. Probably a reference to her. At that point, she was working at the college. Um, she she taught a couple of classes and ran that program. Yeah, that's definitely what that is. Yeah, it's nice to know. There's kind of like, there's a humanity to things like that where you see 
little references and cheeky jokes, things that all like, you know, human references on equipment is not something that is, that's not a part of any other subset of music technology. I think it would be fair to say. Not even, you know, luthier guitarists will put sort of funny comments and sort of references. There's a kind of cheekiness to the sort of the world of Eurorack that kind of, I don't know, it feels unique. I don't know. Other than like, I suppose, you know, computer game design and coding, there's a kind oh, right. of Easter eggs, get yeah. Easter eggs yeah. basically. But I've never bought music equipment that had Easter eggs except for Eurorack. I remember popping open my Pro 1 that I would have had like in the 90s or early 2000s. I had a Pro 1 and popping it open. There was some cool stuff on that circuit board. I feel like there was like, I feel like there was like an image of, of, uh, of like a Hindu god or something like that. Yeah. It was it was strange. It was really I, I, it was kind of cool. There was like a mm. bunch of cool stuff inside of there. There's some phrases and stuff written on it too. I remember. There's definitely yeah. It's, there's, I've seen somewhere like mushrooms and things on like and obviously Seat Lombard stuff is oh yeah for sure wild like that's wild. just yeah the circuit board has art essentially yeah literally uh, you know what it might be is that Eurorack because the modules like they, they're they come out of the enclosure so you're more likely to look at the circuit board than you are like if you bought um like an ob6 i mean you're probably not going to open that thing up unless you have to but maybe if you open it up you might see some funny stuff in there mm. so then tell me about maths I, my understanding of it is that you were kind of messing with like dirt for modules and were like there were combos that you enjoyed I mean, but obviously it's like it's surge dusg as well so that, how that was the one i was trying to remember the uh the banana log made um uh, a surge type envelope generator and so i had um i had set up i bought two of those or traded rather to sean for modules two of those and then a uh, a dope for polarizing mixer i don't know if you remember that one um and so that was a really cool combination for like running them both uh or maybe not even both as lfos maybe one's an lfo one's triggered and then mixing them adding them subtracting them and stuff and I just came up with a lot of cool control voltages that way. So to me, it kind of made sense to make one module that kind of had two simple envelope generators that could be combined in complex ways. And I kind of saw it as being like a, a sort of hub where like a bunch of control voltages would go in and, and fresh new different ones would come out. Do you, how much, what was the prototyping process? Like how many iterations do you go through before you end up at the lightning bolt, the final design? I got some tips from some people like Grant Richter kind of explained to me like how the core worked and how it was sort of loosely related to um, the uh, the DBX, the gain cell that's using like a lot of the DBX stuff. So like there's like there's uh, four transistors in in that core that that kind of um, control the current uh, into the integrator and. you know, that was kind of like a mystery to me until Grant had mentioned something about um, how its configuration was loosely based off of this DBX circuit, um, which DBX circuit was widely available at that point. And so I had found that and kind of like clutched something together that was working pretty good. But the problem initially was that if you had it set for too long of a rise, it would it would latch up which is kind of a common thing in analog electronics. You can have things latch up. So it would reach the highest point and it would just get stuck there and it wouldn't fall back down again. And so that was probably the biggest challenge with that thing was making it not latch up. But I, cause I also wanted to be able to cycle for a really long time. 
like re- as long as I could possibly get. And then one kind of cool thing about this this um, this little current control circuit was that it, the resolution was was really good all the way down to like you know zero essentially. So like you could really just just barely like drip current into the integrator. So it really could go really really slow. But for some reason it would always latch up. And so that was the big challenge figuring out how to make this thing not latch up so that people could run it for like a 25 minute cycle and have it still eventually make its way back down again. Um, and that took me a while. That took not very many iterations of the board because I was uh, just cobbing stuff onto the onto the circuit board because it's a pretty simple circuit. It's not a complicated circuit. I do remember that Sean, who had, he was the person who told me to make what became the quad multimodal gate, obviously. And that was a big hit. And um, although it was way underpriced, especially since I was hand building them initially, it just was impossible to, I mean, the amount of hours I spent building the first 65 was incredible. So I sent him a mass prototype early on and he, he just said he didn't think it would be something that could sell. He didn't think it was um, worth pursuing. Kind of pointed to the doper module I had mentioned, um, the quad AR, and then also the banana log module I had mentioned. He said, look, I've got loads of these things on my shelf. I cannot get rid of them. They're too complicated. People don't want that kind of envelope. And, um, but I didn't listen to him because I just, I thought this thing was kind of cool. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to make some anyhow and you can buy a few if you want. And Schneider says he'll buy a few. So, <laughs> you know, whatever, I'll make like a hundred and, you know, and I'll sell them eventually. And so I did. And it was, I think, kind of slow at first. I honestly don't know how it caught on so well. Honestly, I really don't know. Maybe it was the lightning bolts on the faceplate. I don't know. <laughs> um, it just caught on and think in retrospect, I'm thinking it seemed kind of slow, but because I was still trying to make quad multiple gates at that point too. And those just took a long time. Because even after I started having them made at a shop where they put the components down, I still had to select the Vactrols and solder them in. It's eight Vactrols. So it was still kind of a lot of work for one person all the while trying to like, you know, make the other stuff. Um, so I don't know. It seems like it caught on pretty slow to me. And, you know, I never even made a video for it that I remember. We still don't have that many math, like dedicated math videos in our catalog. We have a huge catalog of videos that make noise. Like, like oh, last I checked, over 200. Yeah. And there's not a single dedicated math video that I can think of. <laughs> kind of weird. I guess other people made them for you. <laughs> I, I think that's what happened is like people started kind of chatting about it and talking about it and sharing tips and tricks. And they would send, they would email them into me and I would add them to manual. If they, and they would think they were like, that's cool. Thanks for adding that to the manual or whatever. Just, yeah. Sometimes I would, I think I tried to credit people. Uh, sometimes they wouldn't want to be credited or they'd be like, I don't know if I invented this, so don't credit me for it, but it's a cool patch. Here it is. And I would add it to the manual. And so the manual grew. Uh, over time as well. Maybe the manual was part of it. I tried to write a really good manual for it because at that time, manuals in Eurorack were pretty slim. Like, you know, like a single, like little, like postcard size piece of paper mm. that came with a module. <laughs> Figure it out on your own. <laughs> it was basically the general, the general attitude. And then I made like a digital, like a PDF manual that was a few pages. So maybe that was, maybe that helped. Um, it, can, it needs a manual, of course, like, yeah, it's it's a difficult one. I feel like it's word of mouth. The forum now known as Modwiggler, that that's where things were discovered and talked about and sort of shouted yep, about. And at the true. time, right. I mean, I was, I was, I remember this was when I was kind of getting into Eurorack and I remember, I remember lusting after the QMMG. There's a sort of, 
there's an era where there's just kind of it's it's like a hazy wonderful time where there's sort of you know there's only a few companies and you were one of them right right you know um and then there's this like explosion it feels like there was you guys were like lighting the touch paper and then it was just kind of like whoom and then right I don't know how it get, got exponential, but it sort it of really did. did it yeah. did. It, you know, you turned your, your fully clockwise and it became exponential. And I don't know what that was like. I mean, were you, how did math sell? Obviously, it picked up. But what point were you like, crap, this is my full time job now? This is a full business. I need help. I have to hire people. It's weird. Like, I think I have some smarts when it comes to like how to talk about stuff or like how to get someone excited about something. But when it comes to like actually organizing a business, I am not good. So, I mean, I was basically, I probably should have hired people two years sooner than I did. I had this one woman who would come out and work. Um, she was actually a student at the college where Kelly worked and she needed a job. So she would put panels on and knobs on and stuff. And that was the only help I had for quite some time. And then um, Kelly decided that she wanted to stop working at the college. And she said that she would work with me. She would help me build stuff or whatever. And so at that point, there was a, oh, I know, there was a mod that needed to be done on the Renee. And so I showed her, taught her kind of how to solder and stuff. She picked it up pretty quick. She's got a steady hand. So that's really the key to soldering. And we set up a station outside on the, on the front um, stoop. And she soldered like the Renee mods. And um, so, the, yeah, I guess that was like the next real employee. I mean, I, Heather was, I mean, she, Heather came and worked three, four days a week. Uh, but yeah, she just didn't do any quality control or anything. She just put knobs on and faceplates on. Yeah. So, oh, well, Kelly, yeah. So she, she was, she modeled all those Renees and she was helping me stamp boxes and all that kind of stuff. And I think at some certain point, she just decided she didn't want to go back to, um, working at the college and decided to work with Make Noise. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff. But, but anyhow, long story short, is that she's the one who kind of said, look, we need to get some other people to help us with this stuff. And we need to find a space for it. Because it, it had taken over like two rooms in the house. There was, we were building stuff at the kitchen table. Kind of, it just taken over the house. And um, so she had kind of decided like, we're this, you know, need to have a real go at this. You know, rent a space and hire a couple people. So at that point, we hired a, a guy, Dash, actually, who just put out a really good record. His, his artist name is Gardner. And um, Here for a Moment is the name of the record. A really good record. It's on Spotify, Bandcamp, well worth checking out. Um, but yeah, he so he was, I think, the first properly hired employee. Like, okay, you're going to work at Make Noise, and we're going to show you how to calibrate a DPO. I think that was what we were building by that point. But, um, yeah, so that was all, yeah, Kelly just basically saying, like, this is ridiculous. You're working too much. You're doing, like, seven days a week, you know, 10-hour days or something. And, like, and uh, yeah, we need to get some people to help. <laughs> yeah. And um, and so, yeah, that's when it really started feeling like, I mean, even, like, the first NAM show I ever did, I remember feeling like, oh, maybe this is a real business. Years ago, I had a conversation with Grant Richter when I was trying to get him to license me the Wogglebug design. And I was trying to pay him for it. And I said, and um, he said, well, you know, if you were a real business, I would charge you, you know, big licensing fee. But, you know, you're just a little, you're just making some synthesizers. Uh, and I, and I, he, I said, well, what's a real business? And he says, well, I don't know. He came up with a number. I don't know where he came with this number. I remember this number, though. He said, I don't know. A real business makes at least a quarter million dollars a year. 
<laughs> you're making a quarter million dollars a year. I was like, no. He's like, okay, well, you know, that's, that's what I mean. You're not, it's, you know, it's, not, it's just, you're just making some synthesizers for fun. And I mean, which was reasonable and probably true. I think if I w were really looking at it, I probably wasn't paying myself, you know, even minimum wage at that point. So he was probably right. <laughs> <laughs> but he did let me make the Woggle Bug and, um, I did end up paying him a licensing fee. And then, you know, we also did the Rick's Mix, which was based off of a, of a design idea that he published. I don't think he ever, he never made anything mm. with that circuit. So he was pretty excited to see that come to life, actually, because it was like the first actual physical hardware version of that circuit that someone could buy. So we licensed that from him, too. Regarding, like, designs, thinking about things like that, how do you, how do you approach designs? What point do you know that something is worth building? I think, you know, I, I think this kind of comes back around to why I have acquired so many instruments. I, I, I feel like, you know, early on, it was all just mystery. And it was all chasing this sort of like this dream, you know, and I, I talk about this all the time, like staring at photos of the old Buchla stuff and, and just wondering, like, what does this sound like? What does this knob do? What does that knob do? What is what comes out of this jack? What do you how would you patch this? It was all just complete mystery to me. I, even though I, I do reference Don Buchla all the time and people would always associate, especially the early designs, as being, you know, having that lineage back to the Buchla instruments. Um, at the end of the day, the reality was is that we were just, I, I was at least just making it up based on like my dream of what the Buchla sounded like or my dream of what it would be like to play um, a 259 oscillator, for example. And, uh, and so now, though, going into the future, I feel like it, what's more important is to have actually played a lot of these instruments and have like real experiences with them so that you can kind of learn where the magic lie and kind of be able to recognize when you find that magic in the future. And I feel like that's true of any art, like, for example, with music. I mean, especially today, it's so easy to make music. It's so easy to record it, arrange it, all that stuff. The steps are all, have they've been streamlined to the point of, of uh, I mean, if you wanted to make a track in an hour, I mean, there's even that program that FACT does, you know, on the clock, you know, where someone makes a track in like 10 minutes or something. But the reality is, you know, when you've actually done something that's brilliant and it doesn't happen that often. You got to be honest with yourself. Every musician, this isn't just you or me, this is any musician, any musician that you really, you really start talking to, like someone, a musician that you really respect. And they don't just go into the studio and make brilliance every day, all day. It, they toil. They record hundreds of songs before they get that one that you hear. Um, and, and so I feel like it's the same is true with designing good instruments. You can't just make something because you can make it. I mean, there's no sense in that. Everything's already there. We already have more than what we would ever need. We have more musical instruments than we could ever possibly consume in a lifetime. So if you're going to bother making something new, you should make sure that it's incredible, that it's, it's, it's completely just going to knock someone over. It has to. There's no reason to make it otherwise. It's just, it's, otherwise you're just adding to like, you know, tomorrow's landfill. <laughs> to some degree, you could really kind of look at what Make Noise is doing. We're making fewer new things as time progresses. You, people would notice this. Someone looked at like early on, we'd launched three, four, even five modules in a year. Now, maybe like one or two. And is it because we're shrinking? No, we're growing. We're a bigger company. We have more employees. We're shipping more, more products, so to speak, than we were back then. But it's just, I think for me, just kind of feel like reached this point where I'm just not interested in doing something that is anything less than uh, you know, astonishing to me. Like if I play it and I feel like magic, and that's like with the Strega, I still play, I've, I've been playing with Strega for like two years now. 
because I was developing it. I spent a whole summer playing it before anyone even knew the name. I still, I played it just last night. I sit down and play that thing. And it's just, every time I touch it, it's magic. So mm. I like that. And it, you gotta, that's what you gotta chase. The stuff that you can't even, you don't even completely understand why it works, but it does work. Whatever it is, art, music, circuits. Unless you're trying to design something to do a very specific job, like make some sort of feedback suppressor for a live performance environment. <laughs> Obviously that needs to just do the thing of suppressing PA system feedback. But you might come up with a really novel approach to that and you know, that could change that game too. I mean, there's cre plenty of creativity we had in those jobs as well. So I guess then, like, what is your favorite design? Like, what, was, what has been your favorite thing to design? Like, taking that process in, you know, in mind. Well, I guess maybe it's because it's on my mind, but I really enjoyed doing the Strega with, with Alessandro. It was really, um, it was very, uh, it was very freeform. <laughs> there was no schedule. There was no um, concern about will this be something that people will, will like or... It was just, I mean, we did try to keep it, we wanted to keep it somewhat affordable. We didn't want to like turn into like some $4,000, like, you know, end all be all instrument. So we knew we, we knew we had a price in mind, but that's really the only thing we had guiding us a price it was you know, just trying to keep it within this budget so that it could be something that a lot of people could experience. And I realize it's not cheap. I, I, I get that, but it's also not crazy expensive. So I do think it's within reach for a lot of musicians out there, which was that something with both he and I really wanted. But otherwise, it was just freeform. It was kind of like me interpreting his artistic output and him kind of pointing at things and saying yes and no, and this should go more in that that way, and this should this should go more that way. And it, it was very uh, it was fun. It was fun to kind of collaborate in that way. So probably that probably Estrega is on recent memory. That's pretty. That was pretty fun to develop. Did you have like a brief? I mean, was there even like a? Did you have an initial meeting where you say we need to make? an ambient industrial instrument, you know, <laughs> or is it like, is it just, we need to make an instrument? It's just, we make, we just, yeah, which is, we need to make an instrument and, and, um, it needs to be, it had to be informed by his, his, um, approach to music. Uh, I was already a fan of his music. So I've already listened to all his music. I mean, I've even, you know, I was listening even back when he was still singing on the records, you know, like Modwell Mod and these things. Um, so I had kind of, witnessed his progression into what he is now seen him perform live many times i know the instruments that he really likes i spent a lot of time in his studio with him him pointing to things and telling me what's good about this so i remember once he showed me this noise source he said this is the best noise source and he, he turns on this it's an old bukla 100 module and he's like show me this noise source and it's basically a noise source that's broken it's like randomly kind of intermittently picking up radio stations and like cutting out and like it's actually like a terrible noise source for all practical purposes. Like it's just, you wouldn't want to use it if you wanted like a white noise source. This is not your game. This thing was like totally busted. That just cracked me up. This is the best one. <laughs> There's something you can take away from that. You know, like that's okay. Yeah, I get it. You know, like this is, you, this is the best noise source because there's probably no other noise source quite like this one. So yeah, right there. That's like a starting point. It definitely, the Strega feels that way. Like I remember playing with it before I think I had a manual when you guys sent it to me and it was mm -hmm. to try and I remember I like took it out the unique experience which is very very fun like which I'm very privileged to have where I can 
I got to see it for the first time, not on the internet, not on like a leak or on a rumor. I took it out of the box and I was like, here it is, you know, fully formed and complete and done. So I was like, uniquely like first-hand experiences for a very digital world. And I remember initially playing with it and being like, oh, wow, like, is this broken? <laughs> like, is this, is it meant to sound like this? Like, because it's different. Although it looks like the No Coast, you know, it looks like the No Control. I feel that it's not like them in many ways. It's the very much the ugly duckling is not the right phrase because it's not ugly, but it's, it's the... It's the black sheep. It is the. It's, it's broken. The, I love it. Yeah. It, you know, but it, it is like, it, but it's it's wild and different. Whereas I feel the I feel a no coast and the no control are very precise and deliberate. Whereas it feels like the Strega has got this intentionally kind of it's free form. It feels like there's kind of it's it's not designed to be a precise instrument in the way that those other ones are. Like, and mm. it yeah. feels the Strega feels like you're kind of. Like you've got some weird Soviet radio and you're tuning into kind of distant broadcasts from the past that have been buried in the soil for a hundred years. Right, right. <laughs> what I just struggle to understand is how you, if you haven't got a design brief, how can you arrive at a, how do you know it's done? Yeah, it's, I, it's just, it, I think intuition. I think in my mind, I kind of imagined what would be an instrument that would excite him? You know, what would be an instrument where he would be able to use it? I mean, there was, I guess the only design brief was eventually we settled on putting it in the same enclosure as a zero coast just because, well, I said, you know, there'll be some cost savings there because we can use the same enclosure. So that'll help us like keep the price um, more reasonable. Um, you know, these are things, it, it's kind of boring to think about, but there are things that can help, you know, and in some ways that's why um, one of the reasons why Eurorack has has excelled so much at bringing really strange, unique ideas into the world of synthesis is exactly that. So most of these strange things that people are cooking up in the world of Eurorack could never exist as like a standalone completed hardware instrument because it, the cost would not be effective. Not enough people would buy the thing to make it worth the amount of money it would take to develop the enclosure and all the other supporting elements. But because you have this sort of this empty case that supports them, it's like people can just throw all sorts of crazy ideas behind a panel. They don't have to worry about a power supply. They don't have to worry about an enclosure. Um, all they have to worry, they don't have to worry about some of the basic stuff. Like, you know, think about like any circuit needs, any, even when you get into digital synthesis, you still need LFOs, envelopes. Um, you still need all the stuff to make the cool circuit work, you know, like a morphogene. That's what one of the most common things people write in their guitar player. They really want a morphogene. Is there any way we would just make a box that would let them just have a morphogene? I said, well, no, that wouldn't really work because you're going to want like an, at least an LFO, random voltage generator. You're going to want these other supporting circuits around it. It's a very hard thing for people who aren't in the modular to get, you know, to understand. But like I said, coming back around to that, like, because that person doesn't have to, they don't have to bring the LFO and the envelopes, all the other things. They can just do their one small little crazy idea and put that out into the world and boom, it, mm. it can work. That's the brilliant thing about the whole Eurorack market is that it, it, you can make any crazy idea can be brought to life. Yeah. And uh, really nothing else like it has ever existed. I mean, modular existed before, but it was just a few select companies that were making complete systems. And people weren't building like 
mixed Buchla Serge Moog systems. No, they might have had. There might. There's probably someone out there who had all three. They weren't mixing them like that. You know what we're seeing today is very, it's very it's it's very unique to anything. Even the pedals. The pedals are cool, and you can mix and match them on the pedal board. But they don't necessarily talk to each other. They don't support each other necessarily. They operate as independent little circuits. The modular. Mm -hmm. You know, my math module might bring to life a module that IntelliGel made. But if IntelliGel had put that thing out as a standalone device. They would have had to come up with all the other support circuitry. It might have never seen the light of day. Mm. But they have the idea to do something like that plonk, for example. Pretty strange circuit. Pretty strange thing to do. How Could you sell enough of those to make that a standalone synthesizer? I don't, probably not. Mm. But as a module, it's, it's, it's great. It can exist next to all the other modules, and it can be a part of that ecosystem. Kind of a, a special thing. I think there's something very beautiful in the fact that, as you're describing it, it you realize that all these modular companies prop each other up. To some degree, absolutely. The existence of IntelliGel helps make noise, helps, you know, Dupfer, helps every, you know, you're all buoying each other up because your existence, yep. it really is the rising tide floats all, helps all ships. I, I think that is true. It took me a while to realize that, but it just became more and more true as time passed. Um, you know, initially, like each new company that would announce, be like, oh, no, another competitor. Oh, like, no. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Like, how are we going to stay in business? Another one, another one. And then after a while, it just kind of became this thing of like, oh, okay, well, I mean, this is, is clearly working. It's not a problem. And in fact, I, I just started noticing, like, well, I mean, maybe the person that gets the Instruyo module isn't buying, you know, they, maybe they get the Instruyo oscillator. They're not buying the make noise oscillator, but maybe they're still buying like the make noise echo or whatever, you know, like they, mm. people are mixing and matching so much that it's like, it just ends up kind of being a wash, honestly. It's not really, it's not really that scary anymore. Now, I mean, obviously there's probably more companies in the market that can sustain, it's kind of crazy, but it's not as scary as it once was, where you're thinking, oh, wow, should I bother ordering more Echo phones? These people made an Echo now. Is everyone just gonna buy that Echo? They're not gonna buy Echo phones anymore. <laughs> I'm gonna hold off on ordering Echo phones. I don't think I can sell anymore. Yeah, these are thoughts that I would have like on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah, it's difficult to know if Eurorack is growing. Is there any way that we can tell how many Eurorack users there are on Earth? And are there more? No real way. I know some people look to Modular Grid. The problem with Modular Grid is that everybody has, like people who don't have Eurorack systems build stuff on Modular Grid. Someone who has like a small Eurorack system might have built like five different systems on Eurorack yeah. Grid. So some people think the number of masks that are out there is directly correlated to the number of um, Euro, no, the ones on Modular Grid. And it's just, well, no, people are building like potential systems and they're throwing stuff in it. So, so you don't have any idea of like who actually owns any of the systems that are on Modular Grid. But geez, I mean, Modular Grid, there's something. I mean, my gosh, I mean, that's how, I, that's an, it's kind of incredible. Like you can mock up systems and like all the information is there and like, ah, things. What a useful, yeah. What was the one that was before it? I've, I've now forgotten what it was called. I keep trying to, do you remember the one where it was like a kind of, yeah. it was a basic web interface? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was no, it didn't get taken as far as Modular Grid did, but there was, yeah, there was one, yeah. Um, but, I remember putting to my early systems that had like this this little fella in and, mm -hmm. you know, it had, it it was, yeah, it was a happy time. I suppose that it's the one question I had about that, I think, and you kind of touched on it a bit. And actually, funny enough, you, we emailed about this because 
when I put up that herb verb, there was that video on uh, Tom Herb making, you know, his lecture about, he had a lecture about the herb verb. So developing the herb verb and, you know, reverb design, really fascinating topic. And I remember at the end of it, he gave a kind of rough, like, cost calculation for the herb verb. And he was like, oh, this is kind of what it costs us to make, and this is what we make on it. And I remember I sent it to you. I was like, do you mind this going out? Like, you know, he's giving some information about the cost of your module. And I was really interested by your response because I'm kind of, I live on both sides of the fence. I think people don't appreciate the amount of extra things that have to be factored into the cost of something as simple as a module. And it's, it's really easy to think that, like, when a maths is, you know, this tiny little PCB and a bit of paneling could cost the same thing as a complete synthesizer from a big mass market manufacturer. I guess a customer looks at that and goes, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Tony, you're, you're taking me for a ride. So what do you say to that, to those people who, who maybe don't understand? Can you help them understand what actually, why these things cost what they cost? Yeah, that is, it is really hard. I mean, it's sort of like when you get into these folks that will cite like the cost of a bomb as being the cost of a product. Yeah. I mean, that's not really the case unless, I mean, I guess in some cases it is if you're just DIYing something, um, you didn't have to spend the time and money to develop it. You just, somebody made a project and you bought the bomb and built it. Oftentimes those people aren't even accounting for their own time though and building it and debugging it. So, yeah, I mean, it is, it is really hard. I think the key is to focus on the fact that it's, it's just, it's a totally different instrument. And really that $300 synthesizer that you're talking about, I don't know which one you're talking about, but there's many of them. It's a speculative one, yeah. It's, um, it's likely that it probably does a lot more than the maths. It's also likely that it's based off of a single DSP IC and has one st- stereo out. That's it some black and white keys, maybe a couple of knobs. So it's a different user experience. Um, modular, even though Eurorack made modular much more affordable than it has ever been, it is still a, a luxury format. It is the most high-end version of synthesis that you can get into. That's all there is to it at this point. It, it, do you need it? I mean, no, you don't need any of it. You don't need any of this. I mean, you can make people make beautiful music with a laptop and a uh, Pure Data, which is a free software. But that's besides the point. I mean, that's not the world that we live in. You know, you also don't need to eat pizza. There's no reason to eat pizza. You know, you don't need what's in pizza or hamburgers. You don't need beer. You don't need any of these things. But you want them because they make life beautiful and, and enjoyable. So that's essentially what modular is. It's, it is luxury. And yes, mass doesn't do that much compared to that synthesizer that is $300 and can make beats and all the other things you know but can we make it cheaper potentially we can make mass cheaper if we were if we were able to secure a level of orders to where we would be able to rather than purchase them and the quantities that we purchase if we could like say for example like quadruple or more like our order quantities so like instead of building them like it used to be 100 at a time then it jumped up to 200 and it's 500 now these these days it's like you make a module you make a thousand which seems like a lot to me but if you go to a company like korg that's they don't do things in that number they're not going to make a thousand of something that's just not their how their business operates so 
if there was a way, if at some point we decided we just want to grow this thing and we go, we're going to go big and we go to like a big dealer, like whatever, Sweetwater or whatever the equivalent is over there and say, we need to lock you down to purchase 20,000 of these things, <laughs> which they would never do. No, they're never, nobody's ever going to purchase that many. And then at that point, we would be able to quote it. And we'd be able to acquire all the parts in greater quantities. And we'd be able to find areas where we could figure out how to build it cheaper. That's all very possible. You could build it for less money. Absolutely. But it's just not there. There's no way we can do that. Mm. We can't. And nor do I want to. I have no interest in building in those. I don't have any interest in getting into that level of the game. I don't want to make. I don't want to sell those kind of numbers. That's like that's like a, a growth that I just don't want. I, I, I kind of like where I'm making noises now. Nah, I like the size of it. Is it big enough? It's too big to me sometimes. I mean, sometimes it freaks me out. Like I wish it was smaller. But, you know, it's also, I'm not going to complain. It's a good job to have. Everyone who works there is happy working there, which makes me happy too. So, yeah, I guess the long way of saying is like, yes, you could make it cheaper, but it's just not something that is really possible mm. on a, in a realistic way instruments that sell a lot like a ukulele they they made ukuleles so cheap now it's because they make hundreds of thousands of ukuleles a year you know so many people have a ukulele sitting in their house not that many people have a modular synthesizer in their house the reality we think it is a lot because we're friends with a lot of people who have them so we're like, everybody has a modular it's like well everyone you know has a modular because that's something <laughs> yeah. that you're into but the reality is not that many in the world, not that many people have a modular compared to something like a guitar or a yeah. piano or you know any number of band instruments, flutes, trombones, trumpets, these things. Not even close. Not even close. Yeah. Modular ukulele. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> not me thinking there. Maybe that's a plonk patch. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So I have only two more questions. What do you say is the future of Make Noise? And then what is the future of music technology? Ooh. So maybe those two things could be interrelated, I'm sure. No, they, yeah, they absolutely are, I hope. I, I keep thinking about, you know, there's this whole period where computers emulated everything. And they're, they're still emulating. And they're still getting better at it. You know, you look at things like the UAD plugins. UAD plugins can emulate, uh, like you say, for example, like, like a Neve mic pre. But people still buy Neve mic pre's. So then I'm, I, I guess that's where I started getting, it, initially, they weren't very good at it. And do you remember uh, software Rebirth? Mm, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I thought it was awesome. It was super fun. Uh, I loved like the, the look of it, the skins, people could make their own skins. It was really fun. But most, many people in the electronic music community didn't feel like it sounded as good as like the real thing. Right. And, um, but in, in, Admittedly, it was pretty early, so it probably didn't. You know, I mean, I didn't have a 303 to compare it to, but it probably didn't because it was super, super early. I mean, pioneering software, really. And now it's like, as we move forward, it's like even Roland is making digital emulations of their own 303. So it's like mm. kind of, you know, at this point, the digital is caught up. I mean, people are making digital things that sound really good, but people still want analog things. So it's like, I don't know, that didn't really go the way I thought it would. I kind of like early on, I kind of felt felt like there was this very, especially even starting make noise. I was like, yeah, hey, do this for a little while. This probably won't last. This is like a five, six year pattern. You know, here I'm like, you know, whatever, 15, 16 years in now, like, oh, okay, well, maybe it's more than that. So yeah, that that's where music tech is kind of confusing because even though it's all gone digital and it's all been emulated, people still want the, I'm going to say real thing, which might offend people who write computer software, but people still want the physical 
analog thing, I guess I'll say. So that's a really hard thing to explain. People are still buying vinyl records, even though you can listen to any record you could think of. You could do a search, and if it's not on Spotify, you're probably going to find it on YouTube, and you can play it. But then people are still buying vinyl records. So that's where human beings are really hard to so hard to predict. You know, like it's all there. You don't need to take up all that space on your shelf with all the records. You don't need to lug those records from apartment to apartment. They're heavy as hell. Why do you still have all those records? You can, all your music is here. You can listen to it anytime. Way more convenient. Doesn't weigh as much. They're still buying them. They, vinyl is so backed up right now that a lot of record labels are trying to get artists to make CDs instead because they can make CDs like that. Vinyl is so backed up, they can't get records. They can't make them. There's too many people want records, right? And, you know, initially your thought would be like, oh, the future of music technology is an AI and machine learning and and we're going to have a filter that's going to guess where you want the resonance to be. <laughs> like, no, not not in my lifetime, that's for sure. The future of music is probably going to be, uh, it's probably going to keep looking a lot like the past. It's just, it's going to be, it's going to be more variations on what's already happened, I guess. That's not super exciting, but... I mean, at the same time, if you think about it, it's pretty fun to play a modular synthesizer or like an, an old uh, a Prophet 5. Um, you know, there you go. Dave Smith, the future of what's the future of, of, of sequential making the Prophet 5 again. <laughs> I mean, that, let's face it, they, that, that was a pretty big deal. People were pretty excited about that. Uh, people were, as I saw it, people were more excited about the Prophet 5 than the Prophet, uh, Prophet X. Yeah, what that one was just called? a sample-based one, yeah. sampling-based one. Yeah, right. I mean, Prophet X is very interesting. It's a mm. super interesting synthesizer, but the fanfare around the Prophet Five was quite a bit more. So, is it because it's better? I don't know. I mean, that's you know depends musician to musician. But you know, maybe if you talk to Richard Devine, he would be you know he's definitely on that tip of like exploring some of these stranger synthesis methods that they're using for synthesizing sounds inside of virtual reality and stuff like that. You know, they're, they're developing whole synthesizers because they don't want to use samples because the samples can't be molded as much to the environment. So they're trying to come up with algorithms to create the sounds that are inside these these uh, virtual realities because then those algorithms can react to what is happening inside that virtual reality just like a real-world thing would. But I, don't, I wonder if like musicians are actually going to want that, though. I don't know. Maybe. I think it's always interesting, the idea of like resynthesis is a fascinating one. When you put in a sound and you get a kind of synthesized version, it gives you more programmability than a sample. Like, I suppose the question is like, what, then what excites you about, you know, are you excited about the Profit 5 or are you, you're sat in, in front of or behind the CS80? So it's kind of, what kind of direction do you feel it should take or could take? For you, what would excite you? I am really easy, easier to please than you would think. I mean, for me, it's all about the user experience. So um, I get excited about things that are intriguing and are, uh, where I don't feel I've always. So I remember my first experience playing Reactor many years back, and it was in, you know I thought this is incredible. My friend had had a copy of it, and um, well, truth be told, this was at that time when there was the, the hacked. Um, no, no, no. Uh, oxygen yeah. or something like some, yeah, which I feel terrible about. That's not you know, a very good thing to do. But at the time, so I had it, I played it. I mean, it was just the possibilities seemed so incredible. It like, it just literally just, wow, like all of this stuff is here. This is incredible. But at the same time, I felt this kind of this, this wall between me and the synthesis method. And it, it 
was really hard to penetrate that wall. I mean, I tried different things. You know, there was the knobby boxes were starting to come out then. There was literally one, I think it was called knobby. It was a black and yellow, had like six knobs on it or something like that. You know, you tried hooking those up. You still didn't feel quite the connection. Um, so for me, it's the connection. I, I, I have to feel the connection. I don't care all how many whiz bang wild synthesis methods it can do because i really do feel like you can get a lot out of some of the most basic synthesis methods you can create a lot of sounds and probably all the sounds you would ever crave if you know how to use it well that's the thing you have to know how to use it well if you don't know how to use it yeah you're going to be jumping from synth to synth because you you know this one just happens to make good good uh percussive sounds and this one just happens to make good pads like well probably that one could make good pads too. And this one could probably make good percussion sounds if you just learned how to program it. But my point is being like, for me, I get satisfied. It's it's the, the experience of using it. How do I feel when I sit in front of it? How, what, how am I compelled to play it? Do I feel like I am in like this, this space of beauty? Do I feel like this instrument is, is like, is, is calling me? Is there like mystery? Is there something that makes me want to reach out and touch it and pull the sounds out of it? You know, sometimes I look at an instrument I've tried to play it many times. I want to like it. I should like it. It has all these features. It has all these things it does. But time and time again, I play it and I can't seem to coax the beauty out of it. And I don't feel compelled to try any longer. It's you know, time to move on. So for me, it's all about that experience. You got to have the experience. I don't care how many voices there is or how many different modes it has and all the different modulation matrices and stuff. The simplest thing can be amazing. Simplest thing can be incredible. Oh yes, what a good ending. I mean, uh, he just wrapped that up in a bow for me, I think. <laughs> good grief. Um, you know, I don't care about how many modes it is. The simplest thing can be amazing. The simplest thing can be incredible. How good, how good is that? And that not only does it obviously encapsulate many of the make noise modules, but things like, makes me think of Buchla modules and things like that, where it's, you look at them and you think, well, there's not much there. But yet, someone can spend an entire lifetime exploring something like a music easel or a VCS3 and things like it, you know. It's tempting to make modulars that just sprawl and sprawl and sprawl endlessly, but you don't need much. And as he says, there's a lot that can be wrestled from really simple oscillators and bits and bobs in combination. Really inspiring and kind of a wholesome, valuable thing to be reminded of. Um, so thank you, Tony, for your time. Um, wow, that was great. What a chat. Um, and so many, so many little things that I'm thinking about um, that were sort of percolating through my brain after that conversation. His line, um, what is it that makes you feel wonderful when you play it? You know, talking about other machines, what makes you feel wonderful when you play it? Do you feel wonderful? <laughs> and the fact that he's like... Um, Oh, God, we have more musical instruments than we could ever possibly consume in a lifetime. So if you're going to bother making something new, you'd better make sure it's incredible. It's going to completely knock someone over. It has to. There's no reason to make it otherwise. Otherwise, you're just adding to tomorrow's landfill. Uh, and also the uh, legendary line, you don't need pizza, you don't need burgers, you don't need beer, but you want them because they make life beautiful and enjoyable. <laughs> 
a whole conversation just makes me want to like put together a very small modular based like a you know Buchler style with just an oscillator and some interesting modulation and and try and inject like the human feel his sort of conversation about on you know suggestions talking about interface being the thing that excites him most about things like the CS80 and the idea that you've got you know, on the CS80, because there's no menus, all of these performance controls, which would be buried on other synths or on the front panel, and they encourage you to set up interesting ways of interacting with the synth. Yeah, that's very insightful. <laughs> like, uh, And true, you know, those things probably would be buried in menus. And perhaps that means that people don't create expressive patches on their synthesizers because they can't be bothered or they just don't know that those things are buried in menus food for thought. If you're a synth designer, perhaps it is worth breaking some of those things out. It might make for a better instrument. Some people asking me recently about whether I would get a Polybrew or a Udio Super 6, you know, which of the poly synths would you get? Um, and I thought about that and my advice that I would give people, and I think it's sort of pertinent to what we were all discussing in that conversation, is that it's not a question of features. It's literally a question of what will speak to you more and so my advice to people is always just go to a shop go to a shop where you've got both of them or you know one individually go to two shops and try them both because just because one has more features doesn't mean that it's gonna work for you or speak to you it's that idea that innate quality that you connect with something on some level and it doesn't fit the whole concept of whether that thing has more features or is like on paper the better instrument though that has nothing to do with whether you connect with an instrument or not you know and so it, it's like trying to ask what's the best filter like it's nonsensical. Like you can point out which filter has the most features and you could maybe say that a certain filter is more popular because more people talk about it or whatever, but it's it's irrelevant because they're flavours and flavours are intensely personal and that flavour can be really, there are flavours to every aspect of a design from the way it looks to the way it feels, like do the knobs wobble, does, you know, are they firm, does it... How does it look? How does it catch the light? What's the, you know, the typography that's on the panel? Do you like it? Does it speak to you on some deep level? Do you get like a feeling when you look at it? It's those kinds of things which I think are just unquantifiable, but really interesting. I think they're the things that Tony from Make Noise is thinking about a great deal as he says that they've not been producing very many products because he's just like... I don't want to do it unless I can really create something that can really knock someone over, as he says. So food for thought. Tony, thank you so much again for your time. Loved the conversation, loved chatting to you and go make noise. May they live long and prosper. And yeah, that's pretty much what we have time for. I want to thank our sponsors, Signal Sounds, an excellent place to get make noise and other bits. As we mentioned at the top of the show, lots and lots and lots and lots of things are available at signalsounds.com. 
If you enjoyed this, please share it. It costs you nothing and yet will help the podcast immeasurably. Tell your friends to listen and subscribe to Why We Believe. Uh, walk down the street uh, with some kind of placard, letting all your neighbours know that you listen to Why We Bleep show. If you would like to support the show, we have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Melodies. You can chip in and that chipping in is of incredible helpage. Please consider chipping in. And I think that's pretty much us. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and we'll see you soon. Bye.